I'm Alan Carey, Director of Sphere Education Initiatives. It's a pleasure to be here with you all this evening. Thank you for those joining us here in person and those joining mm -hmm. us online. I'm excited for tonight's program. We'll be talking about the topic of economic equity. Very briefly, Sphere Education Initiatives, a project at the Cato Institute, looks to work with middle and high school educators on free speech and civil discourse as a mechanism of overcoming polarization in society. We've been thrilled over the course of the last five years to be able to work with amazing professionals all across the country. Some of you joining us here in person, many of us joining virtually tonight. I won't take up too terribly much of your time, but I just wanted to say again, thank you all. And thank you in particular to our student debaters joining us for tonight's programming. Without further ado, I'm excited to be introducing uh, Rhonda Haynes, the Executive Director of the National Association of Urban Debate Leagues, who's our uh, collaborator here in the partner in the event tonight. Rhonda, I'll let you take the stage from here. And good evening, everyone, and especially to our students here tonight. So again, I'm Rhonda Haynes, and as Alan mentioned, I do serve as Executive Director of the National Association for Urban Debate Leagues. That's a mouthful, so we call it NODLE. And NODLE is a backbone organization for 20 urban debate leagues across the country, and combined, we're known as the Urban Debate Network. Nationally, we work to advance debate education and help students build skills that elevate academic achievement, verbal communication, and civic engagement. For the fourth season now, we are excited to present iResolve, which is a public debate series launched with the goal of engaging high school students in real conversations about issues that matter to them most in their communities. And tonight, we bring you this program in partnership with the Washington Urban Debate League, providing a platform for local students, again, to showcase their talents of persuasion, research, and critical thinking, all honed through their experience with competitive debate. We hope this event restores your faith in the great American tradition of debate, which is, of course, is rooted in thoughtful analysis and respectful discourse. Through tonight's debate, students will advocate for specific strategies for combining, for, excuse me, combating inequality. One side will explore access for better educational resources and ensuring all students have access to quality schools from pre-K through college. And the other, the other side proposes a strategy that involves overhauling and simplifying the social service system to decrease the administrative burden placed on families that qualify for assistance. After the debate's initial arguments, our esteemed guest panelists to my right will offer commentary on their arguments providing both, both perspective and feedback for students to consider before their final summation of their cases. We are grateful to this panel of professionals who are either cover, study, or represent active policies and positions around economic inequality in our country. Making this dynamic discussion possible are our generous 2023 iResolve financial sponsors. I wanna thank with personal appreciation event sponsor Liz and Randall Sandler, series sponsors the Asia Group Foundation, and Massey and Gale LLP. Thank you all for your continued commitment to NODL and in particular, this public platform. Of course, in this amazing room here tonight, I want to extend, I would like to extend my gratitude to the Cato Institute for co-hosting and for promoting the importance of common ground and working with individuals 
and groups across the country, excuse me, across the political spectrum in order to build a society that is freer, happier, and more prosperous. And now I have the great pleasure of introducing my colleague, David Trigot, who serves as Director of Programming and Development for the Washington Urban Debate League. David's gonna share a few words before introducing tonight's panelists, and of course, our most special guests, uh, <laughs> debaters who represent the Washington Urban Debate League. David. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. I'd like to, I'm apparently touching it, too many things. <laughs> I'd like to welcome you all to the Cato Institute, um, where I've had the pleasure of uh, working with Alan and the Sphere folks over the last few years uh, on questions of civic discourse. I'm very excited to, uh, this year, uh, introduce some of our current students after having brought some uh, wonderful alumni over the, over the past few years. This discussion on economic inequality is really important because it's something very tangible that is happening in the lives of everyone around them whether they are <clears throat> trying to make ends meet or trying to understand why uh, their dollars just don't go as far as they used to. This is something that impacts everyone regardless of where they are. And we have some wonderful words and wisdom to hear from our participants here today. I'd like to take a second to introduce our panelists. Of course, the second I touch this one, it goes off. <laughs> Um, Ryan Bourne is the Sheriff Chair for Economic Prosperity. The Public Understanding of Economics. The Public Understanding of Economics. Well, that sounds even more useful. <laughs> um, at, here at Cato, and I would encourage you all to check out his recent book on the economics of the pandemic. And Avinash Mohanty is a statistician in the government uh, whose previous work, especially at the Census Bureau, it covered calculating the poverty rate and kind of understanding some of the programs we're gonna be talking about tonight's actual effectiveness. I'm also excited to be joined by our student debaters. Uh, I believe we've decided that Akesh is the affirmative. <laughs> uh, he is a senior at School Without Walls. And Leah is a sophomore at Basis DC. Mm -hmm. We will let them take it from here because I'm sure you wanna hear from them a lot more than you wanna hear from me. You're up Akesh. Okay. So first off, on behalf of Leah and myself, I would like to thank the Cato Institute, the National Association for Urban Debate Leagues, the Washington Urban Debate League, our panelists, and all of you in the audience. We're both incredibly excited to have this discussion about economic inequality. We all have stories of waiting on the government. Going to the DMV when your ticket number is 345 and the screen shows that they're on ticket 4052 is a notoriously terrible example. These are nuisances that some people deal with occasionally. But for low-income families, these nuisances are barriers to putting food on the table. For my family, the past year has been filled with applications for SNAP, free lunch, and Medicaid, 
then realizing that there was an error with the application software, then not being informed that my mom needed to re-enroll for Medicaid, then waiting three months for a paper application to be processed. For my mom, that was 40 hours sunk into solving problems with government benefits that could have been spent on her master's degree or on growing her business. And it's not just my family. The Center for American Progress reports that 40% of people eligible for SNAP are deterred by the paperwork involved. Georgetown professor Donald Moynihan calls this the administrative burden. And this burden is regressive. A 2021 Atlantic, Atlantic Monthly article argues that tax write-offs, setting up a 401k or 529 account, are all easier to access than programs that ensure health care and food for low-income families. The government is in a golden position to fight economic inequality, but dismantling these burdens in the short term is a prerequisite to effective government support. The COVID-19 pandemic is an experiment on administrative burdens that we can now learn from. Administrative burdens were decreased with programs like the Child Tax Credit that used tax data from previous years to automatically enroll recipients. This reduced child poverty to a record low of 5.2%, but due to Congress's failure to extend the Child Tax Credit, the child poverty rate is now at 12.4%. Another pandemic response was the Medicaid Continuous Enrollment Provision. Now that provision has ended, and nationally, 7.4 million disenrollments have occurred so far. Imagine being one of those disenrollees, only realizing that you're not covered by health insurance when you get severely injured. That is a catastrophic scenario for you and your family. That is the context of the situation today. Therefore, I would resolve a three-point plan to make a step toward dislodging this administrative burden. It involves technology, communication, and simplification. The first point is technology. Going back to the child tax credit, having the data required for eligibility was crucial in automating the enrollment process. Data could be shared more widely, perhaps in a federal data repository that states could access at will. There's also the troubleshooting aspect of technology. Many state application systems are online, but what happens when these fail? We need better customer service, perhaps through creating chatbots connected to live assistance or even artificial intelligence. The second point is communication. Much literature has explored the idea of a nudge towards those who might be eligible for a program or need to reapply. Adding personalized components to nudges has been found to increase their impact. And if we develop a system of automatic data collection and eligibility determination, then it seems reasonable to contact prospective benefits with unique pre-populated applications. The next step is simplification, which starts with a redesign and consolidation of applications. Michigan, for example, hired a nonprofit to whittle down a 42-page application by half, improving the percentage of completed applications to 94%. However, when talking about simplification, I must bring up the issue of federalism. Many programs are federally funded, but administered by the states, which is problematic when state actors like Florida don't want benefit programs to succeed. One approach towards simplification is the use of federally funded grants as an incentive for states to consolidate their applications. Of course, this can only be carefully done up to a point, which is why federalism poses such a large hurdle as it stands. There were steps taken over the pandemic and in specific states to reduce administrative burdens. Now is the time to continue that momentum. Because when this burden is shifted from families like mine to the government, all people get their basic needs met, and the country as a whole benefits. Thank you. Thank you. So now we're moving on to cross-ex. 
My first question is, how does relieving the administrative burden increase income for lower class individuals? That's a really good question. And I think that boils down to three costs of the administrative burden. Those are the learning costs, which is that people don't really know about these programs in the first place. There's the compliance cost, which is applying for these programs and reapplying. And there's the psychological cost, which is the constant stress of whether I have health care or whether I can put food on the table due to the administrative burden. I think when people are free of these costs, they're able to find opportunities that they can use to better themselves and further their income. That creates benefits for generations for those families. My second question is, each states have different qualifications, funding, and prioritization of socioeconomic programs. How does your method bypass the state's different actions in once? Yeah, that's a really good question, and it kind of relates to this issue of federalism, that the states have different motivations than the federal government, especially when it comes to social programs. And I think what we can do is make a change on the state level. Every step that we take towards decreasing administrative burdens is one in the right direction, and when states can create a norm of what an effective relationship between the people and the government is, then other states will follow. We can also create federal solutions without imposing them on states. For example, we could create federal data repositories, like I mentioned, or we could create federal grants that incentivize simplifying or cons consolidating applications. My third and last question is, does the plan make individuals self-sufficient? That's a good question as well. I think a big concern with social programs as a whole is that people will stay on those social programs forever. However, I think this is not a true, this is not a true concern. I think that the plan for people, for low-income families who use these programs is never to stay on Medicaid or stay on SNAP for 20 years. The plan is for people and families to get their basic needs met so that they can be on their own two feet and become independent. And I think removing administrative burdens makes people more independent. So that is my part of the speech, and I will now hand it over to Leah, who will be talking about her side of the case. Thank you. Okay. Um, before I'd start my speech, uh, good evening, everyone. My name is Leah Pierce and I will analyze the effects of education on income inequality, and I will present how reforming the American education system from pre-K through college will reduce economic inequality. Okay, now to begin. Recent data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics showcase that education determines how much income one will make throughout their entire lifetime. Those who obtain less than an associate's degree are more likely to be underpaid and unemployed. Furthermore, Americans who are uneducated are unlikely to gain high-paying jobs, which keeps them in their family in low socioeconomic stances. Not enough policy choices have affected the multifaceted issues that prevent low-income families from receiving equality in education. So today, I offer you a choice. Akesh points out that it's a tedious process to receive government services, while I'll offer a solution where Americans do not need to go through such services, instead they have the means to provide for themselves. 
Therefore, I resolve that the U.S. federal government should, one, establish universal pre-K, two, strengthen the STEM curriculum in public schools from K through 12, three, make states use a mix of property taxes and state taxes to fund these strides, and four, cap college tuition. One, universal pre-K. Studies from the American Progress Organization show pre-school attendance vastly improves low-income families' academic and socioeconomic outcomes. Studies from Georgetown University have also proved that students who attend pre-K are more likely to attend college. Additionally, universal pre-K boosts the maternal labor force participation rates for these families. Many mothers have to jeopardize their economic stability to provide for their children, often keeping families poor and children undereducated. In Washington, D.C., the district government established a universal pre-K system. The effects were monumental. Statistics from the Center of American Progress highlights that the maternal labor force rates increased by 12%, and research suggests that low-income families had greater financial security than previously. Two, the school system should focus on strengthening STEM curriculum. Although the U.S. is a global leader in technology and science, the International Mathematics and Science Study points out that American students are lacking in STEM proficiency. As complex technologies such as artificial intelligence increase the demand for skilled workers, America must provide ample public school public education and STEM for students to obtain these jobs. Data from the National Assessment of Education of Progress highlights that by the time American kids reach 12th grade, only 21 to 22% of them are proficient in math and science, respectively. This can be solved by strengthening the STEM curriculum in public schools. Schools need to offer advanced, math, advanced science and math courses. Bridging this educational gap will re reduce income income gaps as data from the Center for Strategic and International Studies show that the medium annual wage for non-STEM jobs is $33,160, while the wage for STEM jobs is $86,980. Three, states need to use property taxes and, ta and state taxes to fund the reforms. Public schools are largely funded by property taxes. This proves to be harmful rather than unhelpful. This means schools in wealthier districts have more resources than ones in poorer districts, which often affects minority students rather than white students. In a CBS report conducted in Georgia, many researchers found that the minority schools, schools were only able to invest $800 in resources per student, while white schools were able to invest over $1,000 in resources. This discrepancy causes test scores and school maintenance and the quality of instructors to be drastically different in the schools. Transitioning to a system that provides property taxes and state taxes to fund the schools is necessary to provide provide equal access to opportunity for every student. Such a system is feasible. In 2020, Maryland implemented this reform in their school system and saw better facilities and test scores at the majority non-white schools. The Maryland state legislators chose to increase their educational funding by $3.8 billion over the next 10 years, provide schools an extra $4,000 for every student enrolled, and out of the billions of dollars, allocate $400 million towards minority schools to rebuild facilities and for cap college tuition. Data from the Bookings Institution shows that college tuition has more than tripled since the 80s. Such unaffordability has kept many low-income students out of college or stuck with astronomical debt. Research from the US News and World Report points the blame on administrative cost. To combat this, the government should impose tuition cap tuition caps. Here's how they'd work. The government can set a limit on tuition equal to the cost of services for in instruction specific to an applicant and then allow the colleges to levy a fixed premium for each student they enroll. Next, the, to ensure colleges can continue providing the same higher education level as before the government should, um, should 
the government should increase their grants to colleges. According to the Century Foundation, these policies are supported bipartisanly. Voters want lower college tuition, and Republican lawmakers like Virginia Fox from North Carolina and Democratic lawmakers are trying to achieve this. In conclusion, simply put, there is no more powerful way to combat inequality than education. I am open for cross-ex by Kesh. Great speech, Leah. Um, I, my first question um, was, this is in reference to your capping college tuition part of the plan. I was wondering, do you believe it's necessary for all Americans to go to college to advance themselves and their family? So, more and more Americans are taking the college route and more and more jobs that are high paying are actually requiring college degrees. Therefore, we should have a system in place that allows people from low-income backgrounds to have the opportunity to attend college. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. I was also wondering, how long do you think it will take to see the impacts of improving the education system on economic inequality? So, I believe that these effects can be seen quite quickly. If, for example, the capping college tuition portion of my plan, this would affect, if it was in place quite uh, maybe this year, it would affect applicants for like next year's applicants or applicants in uh, uh, beyond and other proportions other portions of the plan like universal pre-k would affect other kids as like kids quickly as well which would affect um, people getting jobs right now in college um, or internships that are paid that require college degrees or college attendance and it would also like start out people who like for that four-year track, they get their college degree and they can enter the labor force quickly. Okay, thank you. And then my third and last question, I was just curious, so currently there's a shortage of teacher, teachers nationwide that's affecting all levels of the education system. How does your plan for universal pre-K and prioritization of STEM interact with these challenges? First, I'd like to say that we cannot afford not to solve the teacher shortage, and I believe that doing the plan will... Um, address on that. Many people have not uh, um, gone on the college path because when they're saddled with student loan debt from college by capping college tuition, we prevent that. Also, people that for decades have been kept away from college because of the unaffordability, they like we don't know about the actual potential of them to have been in the labor force. And many the reasons behind people not uh, joining becoming teachers or leaving the labor force is because of low wages and low standards in the classroom by using states uh, state taxes and property taxes to fund schools that will be addressed okay. thank you Okay, well that was great, thanks guys. Um, I've got a couple of quick questions I'll fire at um, each of you. Um, Akesh, um, you seem to believe, why do you believe that households react significantly to the administrative costs? So, you know, you can think of it, the administrative hurdles as a cost to individuals. You seem to think that has a big effect on their behavior in terms of their willingness to sign up and access benefits, but then seem to believe that um, their response to the cost of losing benefits and becoming kind of self-sufficient is very, very small and doesn't matter. How do you reconcile those two views about the, you know, how they respond to cost? So I think the risk of there being families who 
intend to stick to government programs forever. That risk exists with or without the administrative burden that's currently you know, in, within these um, systems. And so I believe that for those households like mine, who like, you know, if my mom is spending, for example, 40 hours on these programs, using that towards a better place, like education, like gaining a master's degree or growing a business, that then benefits the entire American economy. So I believe that it's worth, you know, solving these administrative burdens because the vast majority of families aren't intending to stick to programs like SNAP for years and years. They're intending to use these programs to meet their basic needs. And it's also a moral issue because if we can't meet the basic needs of citizens in this country, then we can't, we can't thrive. We can't do things like you know, focus on higher education for all. So I believe that even if there is a risk of some families um, you know, sticking to programs forever or having that kind of mentality, it is worth solving administrative burdens. Yeah, I, I got that takeaway from your, you know, from your remarks that this was a moral issue. It was really about the efficiency of government. So I just wonder, given that, uh, what would success look like? You know, how much would this really tangibly affect economic inequality? Are we talking about income inequality, wealth inequality? You know, how would you be able to judge that your proposal would actually be a success? That's a good question. I think, so in regards to efficiency, um, sometimes it is worth having a sort of outside perspective, which is why Michigan, for example, utilized a kind of nonprofit outside um, institution to simplify their application. And we could look at the statistics, for example, how in Michigan 94% of applications are now successfully completed. Um, and we could also look at more like data like Mr. Mohanty that you analyze, such as poverty rates, to see that, for example, over the COVID-19 pandemic, child poverty rates were reduced to a record low. So in improving and making the government more efficient as it comes to providing benefits, we can see those effects on those applications, and we can also see those effects on the economic situation of the United States as a whole. And Lee, um <clears throat> So I want to try and reconcile something. So you said that um, pre-K, provision of pre-K is good for low-income families. So why would you like to make it universal? Why not just target it at low-income families? So because most families, and that's a good question, but most families, they right currently right now, they um, send their children to daycares. And if we make it daycares rather than programs, I guess, targeted for them in the current uh, status quo. However, if we make it universal, then one, families, usually whenever the government does it, it's more publicized, more structured, and they're better instructors, and it's actually intricately formatted and proper for like the systems to occur. So I think making it universal would actually target these low-income families better. So, yeah, just as a follow-up to that, I mean, in a situation where all of this education is provided universally, um, how worried are you that the kind of quality impacts of that might be to kind of level down as opposed to kind of level up the quality? Um, you know, the, the governments already around the country provide extensive education. A lot of it is very low quality. Uh, how would you ensure that if you're doing this kind of top-down approach of, you know, the same educational systems and opportunities to everybody that they might not end up uh, universal but at low quality? Well, the reason why it's low quality is actually the current education system is underfunded by $150 billion. Uh, those are statistics from the Century Foundation. 
and also with the low, low poor working environments and low wages, that's what you can expect. However, with the plan by one strengthening some curriculum and also using a mix of state and property taxes to now fund the initiatives that would boost education, quality of instructors and educators as seen in Maryland. And then also focusing on STEM would give children more opportunity, more higher quality opportunities to achieve um, once they get to higher levels of academic matriculation and into the real world. Thank you. Akesh. Um, <clears throat> how would you address the uh, issue of underreported income of individuals in your program um, when it comes to uh, IRS you know, records and things like that? We often see that individuals don't report babysitting income, um, uh, possibly Uber drivers, things like that. That's a really good question. Thank you. Um, I think one thing is that it wouldn't, it, so when I reference kind of like a repository of data, it, it would be including tax data, but states, depending on their situations and their priorities, still have the flexibility of imposing or in, in implementing conditions. Um, a lot of states currently implement conditions like having a work uh, like uh, requiring uh, citizens to work um, while being on those programs. So I feel like it will include, while there might be underreporting of income on tax, on tax data through the IRS, there are also other conditions that can be looked for. And when we share that data between state agencies and between the state and the federal government, we can more efficiently provide these government benefit programs. Okay, I, I have one more question. Um, Regarding your um, take on federalism and how it is an issue because of the block grants, um, how do you account for the fact that there may be different costs of livings in different states where they, the entitlement programs may have to adjust to the, very, the differences in cost of living? That's a really good question. Yeah, so states obviously have various priorities. And like I said, there's kind of like, there is flexibility. We're not, I'm not suggesting that the federal government should go into every state and just implement a universal application or something like that. I'm more so suggesting that states can implement kind of qualifications and conditions to, as, as to their wills. But, but they improve in that they consolidate applications between different state agencies or they share data with the federal government so that, or the federal government shares data with the states so that we can more easily determine eligibility for some of these programs. And states, once again, can kind of take that data as they wish. They don't need to use all of it to determine their conditions for meeting these um, eligibility requirements. But having that as an option for states to use and to be able to... Um, determine automatically who is eligible and who's not, that would increase efficiency of, these, of this implementation. Okay, thank you. Uh, Leah, I have a question for you. Um, there, are, uh, there are countries such as Finland where um, pre-K is, is not very popular. Kids really start school at, at six years old. Uh, Finland is known for its highly um, effective education system. So how do you explain... Um, you know, nations in which they don't have very early childhood education and uh, you, we, they do have success? Uh, that's a great question. I haven't done that much research on Finland-specific um, economic or like socioeconomic um, cases, but in the U.S., I think that many families 
and even in like the D, uh, DC's case, the parents are undereducated and often their jobs don't pay as well. And that leeches off to the children, unfortunately not being able to get higher vocabulary or um, good like early on math skills or the parents don't really know how to give good ed educational, educational um, resources to their kids. But I see, I think in Finland, if the parent, if this ha has been the system for decades, then that necessarily would not affect all parents in Finland, or at least that, re that percentage would be smaller. However, in America, that is not the case. So the U.S. specifically would need universal pre-K in order to remedy the decades and generations of parents who have not been able to give adequate academic, early on academic resources to their children. Okay. Um, and uh, one more question. Um, related, um, how, do you, how do you deal with the fact that um, people uh, who may not be prepared for college may be pushed into college um, in your system? How, how do you deal with the possibility of burnout or individuals who um, uh, become somewhat uh, distrustful towards education because of being um, you know, push towards uh, uh, education, uh, uh, taking a pathway in their career that involves education when they shouldn't be uh, taking that pathway? That's a very interesting question, very nuanced. Uh, but individuals, I'd say one, people who are, I think, pushed into college because now it's affordable to them and they aren't really ready to go into a field like education, I think that would be remedied by the increased funding, increased funding for schools as that would set a minimum standard for teaching quality and also in the environment that teachers need to bring. But if a person was to somehow get a job um, as an educator and they are not good at their job, I do not believe that they would last long in that environment. Um, so, but if someone, okay, but like with burnout and stuff like that, I do think though that if they were exposed to STEM curriculum um, in their early years, they would at least have opportunities or areas that they at least think that they may be good at. And that's like, I think that outweighs the possibility of like a certain group of people just not really getting it while you have a bunch of other people who like can and they just haven't been giving that ability before due to them being in lower being them being in the lower class okay thank you so much thank for you questions Debaters, thank you so much for the work that you've done to lay out a compelling and interesting case. We want to give you a few minutes to take the opportunity to put together your closing remarks and turn to our judges who are now going to be subject to your questions and challenges going forward. So we've got a few questions coming in online. We also would love to take some questions from those in the audience. If you would raise your hand, we'll go ahead and call on you. Let me start with one of the online questions for our judges. Many of the questions that we're receiving have to do with thinking about what is meant by equity in the first place. So interesting conversation that is often in some cases framed as 
do we mean equality of opportunity? Do we mean equality of outcome? And why does thinking about that in one direction or the other change how we think about how we might solve the issue? Uh, so Ryan, let me turn to you with a question first, and then Abhinath, I'd love to hear you speak to it as well. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I think thinking back to the presentations, really, uh, Leah's presentation was, to my mind, more about equality of opportunity, right? It was, that's the quintessential argument for extensive education provision by the government, the idea that you give everybody the same start in life, and then kind of after that, people go off, make personal choices, personal decisions about how to live their lives, what um, areas of work they go into, whether they uh, go further in their educational development and whatnot. Um, that's a very different concept, I think, to how a lot of other people use equity, which is really equality of outcome, um, the amount of income a household in a, the poorest 20% holds relative to somebody in the, the top 20%, and the role that government has in kind of equalizing that through the tax benefit and social security system. Of course, there are other concepts of equity. There's equitable treatment under the law, or um, the one that we like to push here at Cato is um, kind of equity of permission, equality of permission. Um, everybody should have the opportunity to be able to pursue their goals kind of as they see fit, unencumbered by unnecessary kind of government barriers to betterment. So that's why, you know, a lot of Cato's work focuses on things like occupational licensing reform and uh, labor market freedoms, the ability to kind of take a job without the, uh, the government getting between a potential employee and an employer. And I think your starting point on that really informs what type of policy solution you would go for. A lot of this is about uh, values as opposed to being some sort of technocratic judgment as to how best to kind of close some, some gap. You first have to define what gap you're interested in, and, and that offers very different perspectives. Yeah, I agree. This is somewhat of a value-based um, uh, discussion, and um, you know, you would have uh, one side that may um, kind of look at, uh, you know, a veil of ignorance, where you know you have uh, you kind of see yourself in any point in society, and you try to see how far you can go, and if there's like an equality of opportunity from your whatever starting point you're at. And then there would be another side where um, it's more about um, you know, uh, liberty and the equality of, of, of being able to pursue what you want to pursue with unencumbered. Now, um, in my previous work, what we really measured any um, equality through was uh, like the Gini index and as well as um, we would look at things like poverty um, equality, uh, measure equality, looking at poverty longitudinally, really see if individuals of different races, of uh, different, um, uh, you know, educa educational status, what, what is their um, status in life after four or five years? Um, what is, uh, or, um, and, and make comparisons. Often in the United States, we make race-based comparisons. We compare between whites and blacks to see if there is a uh, discrepancy and see if that ratio is reduced over time. So, um, you know, as a uh, government statistician, what we often do is we measure equality comparing to a base group that, we, you know, maybe that we would consider historically advantaged or, you know, a group of individuals that we um, uh, have seen uh, that we consider to be currently successful and compare, you know, the disadvantaged groups to that. Um, the, um, 
there, uh, there are groups that would be uh, arguing in opposition to that, and we really believe in, um, you know, measuring it through um, more what, how much effort the person put in as opposed to just simply looking at, um, you know, these differences um, between uh, uh, groups. Thank you, panelists. Let's take a question from our audience. Uh, we'll come down up here first. What? Hi, thank you, Eric Jaffe. I'm with Noddle. I'm with Woodle, actually, not, not with Noddle, uh, though I've long been associated with them. Uh, going to your questions about equity and, and uh, equal opportunity versus equal outcome, it strikes me, and I'll channel a friend of Woodle and Noddle here, Norm Ornstein, that you know, unless everyone's starting from the same starting line, some of those questions are a little bit fraught. So um, one person who is starting with a bunch of tutors and uh, daycare paid for by a wealthy family is not starting at the same starting point as a family that may face challenges and could use the, pre, you know, the universal pre-K or could use the SNAP benefits in order to let the family go out and do other things. So even from a sort of equality of opportunity perspective, do you think that sort of getting the next generation, young kids who obviously are not in any sense you know, responsible for the position they find themselves born in, do you think it's important to get all young kids starting from at least something close to the same starting point? I mean, I've, I've always thought that actually in many ways equali complete equality of opportunity is a more unattainable goal than equality of outcome. There's been lots of regimes around the world um, in the past that have been very, very good at equalizing incomes. They haven't tended to be particularly prosperous places. Um, early communist China, you know, Japan after World War II when everything was destroyed, wealth inequality plunge. But in many ways, um, you know, uh, obtaining genuine equality of opportunity is more difficult for exactly the reason that you state. You know, you can provide exactly the same educational experience, ban private schools, um, and put everybody in uh, daycare um, from a very, very young age. But unless you're going to take kids away from their parents, um, uh, people's experiences in being brought up by the particular parent, their access to tutors, their access to other resources are always going to be um, very, very different. So, you know, if you want to preserve some sort of modicum of liberty, I think the the kind of trade-off that you have to make is essentially to say, well, we're going to accept that there's a fairly high degree of divergence in uh, opportunity, but we're going to provide a, a safety net. We're going to provide a base level that we believe is uh, the opportunities that individuals need to participate well in society. And that's not going to be um, completely equalized across all individuals in each successive generation. Um, but we think it's socially acceptable as a flaw. And that's, by and large, where, you know, to, to, to greater or lesser extents, welfare state countries in the West have kind of have got... Obviously, some are much more generous in the provision of <laughs> certain social services and, and welfare benefits uh, than others. Um, a lot of that, I think, is culturally dependent on the country that you're talking about. But, uh, you know, I, I think when you think about it logically, you kind of have to reach that type of trade-off. Yes, um, you know, I think that it, it's been the, the goal of, um, you know, kind of um, the modern U.S. Uh, government to try to have a base level of 
um, education and its citizenry as that like benefits us as voters, as um, you know, active citizens in our um, uh, population, as well as you know, uh, as um, as people who are worth hiring in the economic system. So, I think that you know, it's it has been the goal of um, the government uh, in the last you know six, 60 years since um, to kind of uh, create a a base level of education for all citizens, regardless of where. Um, they were born or what their uh, disposition was when they um, were when they grew up, disposition they grew up in um, so it it you know it, and that 's kind of been the what we see in all western nations as well um, let 's take one quick question from our online audience and then one more in person. Uh, Question coming in online for both of our panelists is thinking about what you believe would be the most effective short-term policy change that could be undertaken to help close some of these inequities. So from how you would define the appropriate inequity to think about it, where do you believe we can make the most impact in the quickest return? Uh, Abinash, would you like to take this one first? Sure. I think that... Um probably the most useful thing we could do is really expand the social networks of individuals in, um, in, in their childhood. There was a recent study um, that was done, um, a longitudinal study by Harvard, I believe, um, that really highlighted that one of the um, strongest uh, indicators of later success is the social network that you were in when you were growing up. So I really think like the integration of neighborhoods as well as the integration of um, like schools to have diverse um, on, uh, students, you know, uh, from poor backgrounds, from rich backgrounds, from middle class backgrounds can really help with um, really giving a social network to low income children um, and um, to and, and develop the connections that they can later use for employment as uh, for role model, um, getting role models and things like that. It's the it's the missing link for a lot of kids, you know, they perform really well. They may be from a low-income background in school or something like that, and then they don't have the ability to um, really realize the opportunity that exists. And so I think that that's, that's where, um, I, if, I, if I was going to make a change, that would be it. Yeah. I'd make it much easier to build housing in economically successful places by rowing back on zoning, urban growth boundaries, and all the other regulations that... Uh, prevent or make it more costly to build uh, more market housing and for a whole variety of reasons. I think not only would it make it um, easier to, for, for people to move to better opportunities, um, I think it would have spillover effects of uh, reducing housing costs, which are a huge part of families' budgets and growing in many parts um, of the country. I think it would help break down some of the like kind of school zoning district stuff. You know, if it was cheaper to get houses, more uh, parents would have opportunities to move to places where they thought they could get better educational um, opportunities for their kids. And just the economic evidence is overwhelming that having uh, opportunities to move to somewhere with lots of productive people and dense networks can really improve individuals' economic opportunities. So um, I've long come to the conclusion that, the, uh, that housing is the closest thing that we have to a silver bullet, not just in the US, by the way, but across a lot of the Western world, especially the English-speaking world, which seems to have a particular problem with this issue. 
Excellent. We have time for one last quick question and even quicker response. Right over here. Um, hi, my name is Madison. I'm also a debater with Whittle, and my main question was, what do you think is the biggest challenge when coming to agreements on these types of decisions and making sure that the voices of people who are directly hurt, um, affected by them are heard when these policies are being made? I think there are lots of different divisions. One that we perhaps haven't spoken about so much tonight is... Uh, I think some a lot, some people have much more faith in experimentation, whether that be at a, a state level, local level, or you know individual school level, or whatever. Whereas um, there is a te more technocratic view that there is a correct solution to everything, and once we find the correct solution, we should kind of roll it out across the the whole country. I think that I see. America's federalism as a great positive. I think it's one of the, those kind of local democracies of experimentation are one of the reasons that, you know, despite lots of bad policy, the US is still uh, incredibly rich relative to uh, even many European uh, countries. But I just don't think that, that mindset of being willing to enable a degree of chaos and, and believe that best practice will spread from experimentation, I think is very, very difficult for the human brain to appreciate everybody. I think we all like to think we can find the right solution for something. So I don't have a good answer to your second part of your question, but uh, my answer to the first part would be that that's the, a, a big barrier. I wouldn't say perhaps the main barrier, but a big barrier that we have, kind of have to overcome when thinking about this challenge. Yes, so I would say um, the, the biggest barrier we have is really, uh, like I said earlier, I think the, um, the lack of um, interacting with individuals of different groups. Um, you know, as we see kind of this kind of dismantling of uh, social institutions that kind of bring people together, like, um, like you see uh, churches, um, like lions groups, um, even uh, schools have become increasingly um, segregated. Um, you know, you have individuals of certain income groups going to one school. You have certain, um, uh, you have uh, schools that are majority black, majority white. Um, you know, as we as we see this kind of dividing, we have uh, less interaction with each other. So we don't see the um, the circumstances that other individuals have really lived in. And I think that that's what um, really can inform us when it comes to policy, when it comes to um, even that experimentation, as you said. Um, uh, it can give us innovative solutions to problems, but we can't really do that unless we have the, um, the data or, and, and the experiences and the ability to understand um, the circumstances that, people, um, that certain people live in. Panelists, thank you so much. With that, debaters, your prep time is over. We'll turn it over to you for your closing remarks. Sounds good. Thank you. There's a common phrase that I'm sure you all have heard. Time is money. It makes little sense for a government to make those with the least amount of money spend the most amount of time to get the support that they need. Because when families like mine get our basic needs met, the entire economy is boosted. Reducing burdens means that income and opportunities are more evenly spread. 
I want to address a great question I heard, um, is how do we measure success with administrative burdens? It's I believe it's when we see a change in the norm between what a properly functioning relationship with the government looks like. A norm where you don't even have to think about the benefits that you receive. They're just automatically applied. It becomes much more like the social security program currently and much less like the DMV. I also wanted to address some questions on people becoming too dependent um, on social pro programs or the motivation of families who receive these programs. I believe that people being on assistance forever is not a real fear. There are going to be flaws and people who take advantage of the system, but that risk of welfare as a whole exists with or without the administrative burden. For the people who need these programs to survive, there's no reason to put a 42-page application between them and their next meal. As mentioned during questioning, the fact is that the government benefits are currently administered by the states, yet funded by the federal government. To respond to this concern, I want to bring up an example from about a decade ago, where states were given the option to expand Medicaid. The idea was that states would not turn down essentially free money that would objectively benefit their citizens. But states like Utah, which had different priorities and motivations, turned down billions in federal funds for their people to have health care. So we learned that even when faced with an objectively good thing like health care, states have, an, have the tendency to do as they wish. However, now in 2019, voters in Utah saw the benefits that other citizens of states um, were receiving, like in Massachusetts, and they used their vote to implement expanded Medicaid. North Carolina just recently did a similar thing in 2023. We can set a norm of what a properly functioning relationship between the government and its people looks like, and through this norm, we can provide basic needs to all citizens regardless of their home state. Furthermore, paperwork may not be as glamorous as education, but it's the immediate reality of the situation for those who need these programs to get back on their feet. Fulfilling basic needs of healthcare and food, for example, are a prerequisite to addressing issues like education. Even if college becomes affordable, for example, low-income students won't even consider higher education as an option if they are struggling to eat lunch every day. I acknowledge how impactful education can be for all families, but there's also a key difference in time frame between our plans. Over just the two years or so in the pandemic, child poverty rates were reduced to record lows and Medicaid enrollment was increased by 22 million thanks to decreasing administrative burdens. That was in just two years. Imagine what we can do now by implementing solutions to s that solve this burden. By improving technology, communication, and simplification, we'd be taking a huge step in the right direction towards solving burdens and economic inequality as a whole. Because we cannot solve economic inequality if the government consistently puts the most time and psychological burdens on those with the biggest financial burdens. Thank you. That was a fantastic closing speech. Thank you. Okay. Is it better to solve simple logistic issues in the federal programs or to reform universal systems that have determined one's life trajectory? We must address the root cause of income inequality to actually solve it. Even if we solve government burdens, it doesn't allow low-income families to obtain factors that will determine their socioeconomic status in the future. Education is what enables Americans to make high annual incomes and to be proficient in high-demand and high-paying fields like STEM, where the average STEM career pays more than half of what a non-STEM field related career would. Additionally, only by allowing Americans to attend college and gain requirements for these jobs will these strides be effective. Therefore, we must establish universal pre-K, strengthen the U.S. STEM curriculum, and reform funding mechanisms and cap college tuition. 
To respond to what Akesh said, he said administrative burdens straight off with education. We must ask the question of what systems failed that the parents or children are having to rely on such difficult systems in the first place. That's the education system. If our education system was structured in a way that enabled more Americans to have high income jobs, they wouldn't need such systems. He also said that relieving the administrative burden reduces poverty. Just simplifying welfare programs doesn't ensure the academic success or trajectory of children and adults, which causes families to maintain their low socioeconomic status and financial insecurity. He also said that using financial incentives would we encourage state to abide, states to abide by his plans. Multiple states do not wish to simplify their programs or have necessary requirements specific to their state in order to achieve what's best. This leaves gaps open for states not to accept the incentives. His own examples of Florida and Texas prove. Next, he said that people won't go to school if they cannot afford things like lunch. That's why the necessity of the funding reforms are key. Moreover, just because families are able to access welfare better, better, it doesn't improve their ability to attend college, learn key subjects like STEM, or attend pre-K, all necessary mechanisms for individual success. Now to respond to the Cato's questions. On to the, for, on to the first question of low-quality education because it's by the government, schools are underfunded currently, and no policy has been broad or focused than this one. By focusing money specifically on certain issues and problems, like, I, like in the beginning of my speech, that are multifaceted, and also funding them, schools are currently underfunded by hundreds of billions of dollars, will we actually see quality rise and there actually be a standard for teachers and wages and resources in the classroom? And on to the other question of college burnout, the Pew Research, Pew Research states that Florentine Americans are not going to college, and that number is actually getting higher, not shorter. We cannot afford to keep continuing a disadvantaging system like this, where we are not giving people necessary factors in order to um, go into the labor force. In conclusion, I'd like to return to the organizing principle of the debate. Which one is more important, education or purpose work? While Akesh is giving people a blueprint to survive, I'm giving people a blueprint to thrive. Thank you. Debaters, thank you so much for that. We're gonna turn next to feedback from our panelists for our debaters. Avinash, Ryan, please take it away. Well, thank you guys, um, Akesh, Lee. Um, fantastic and shown wisdom far beyond your, your age in both your initial remarks and your um, responses there. I thought you both addressed um, the questions that were put to you directly and you took them head on. Um, I think that, um, Lee, your final line <laughs> was probably the most memorable line of the evening, so congratulations uh, for that. Uh, ending on that note was, was great. And I think you both touch on really important issues. So I think we all agree that in an ideal world, we'd have a more efficient government, and interacting with the government would be kind of far less painful. Um, I think the, the real question that we kind of perhaps need to dig into a bit more is, how do we get to this place? How do we get to a point where interacting with the government is so painful right now? Um, a concept that I quite like to address um, when I'm thinking about research is this idea of the Chesterton fence, right? There's a, there's a fence somewhere and you don't know why it's there and you think, I just want to go and take that fence down. But actually somebody's put that fence up for a reason. Um, and the reason is that there's usually some sort of trade-off to do with the 
kind of policy that you're trying to implement and some reason why you might want to ask a particular question of an applicant for a welfare benefit because the alternative might be a high degree of uh, fraud, people misstating income. So there are lots and lots of um, trade-offs um, in policy that I think always um, uh, arise. Another concept that we have in economics that Leah, I think maybe we could dig into some more if you were to research this issue is the idea of uh, not thinking about education in its totality, but thinking about the kind of marginal impact, the impact of expanding by a certain degree. Because I have no doubt that um, a highly educated workforce clearly adds to the prosperity of a country. That's overwhelming. It's less clear to me that expanding uh, pre-K will have these kind of transformative impacts. I think sometimes a lot of these studies kind of extrapolate from uh, results looking at you know, the whole of schooling and, and perhaps say an extra year of schooling would be great. But if you're talking about providing pre-K for a small subset of the population, it's not clear to me how big an impact that would have on, um, on uh, inequality. Some kind of policy general things that I would kind of think about and I think would add to the substance of your um, arguments. One is uh, to think about international context sometimes. Um, there's a whole lot of experimentation in the provision of welfare and education around the world. What can we learn from that? Um, secondly, think about trade-offs. Um, I think there are clear trade-offs when it comes to the provision of welfare. Welfare um, can clearly lift people out of poverty if you define poverty by a certain line, but it does often, when it's means-tested, make it more difficult for people to earn their way out of um, a kind of semi-status of poverty or a risk of poverty. Um, third point, think about scaling, right? So a lot of the studies that you guys um, drew from or the examples that you were thinking about were, in your case, uh, Akesh, the, um, the expansion of the child tax credit in the pandemic. Right, that was a temporary program, and as a result of being a temporary program, people knew it was a temporary program, and so it didn't perhaps affect their work decisions and, and other aspects of their lives in the way it would if it was a permanent program. So there are different trade-offs. Likewise, um, um, you know, when we're thinking about pre-K, I have no doubt that the provision of pre-K um, to very disadvantaged households would uh, potentially improve life chances pretty substantively. Um, it's less clear to me scaling that up at a national level uh, and it being a universal program would do the same. Indeed, I think where that has been tried in places like Quebec, um, some of the consequences for uh, kids who are above the, the poverty threshold has actually been negative. And just the final, the po final point I would make uh, from a policy perspective is do think about and uh, you answered, this, you answered this relatively well, but do think about this uh, trade-off between experimentation at a local level um, and, uh, and imposing things from the top down. Because, yes, if you can get it right from the top down, you can, of course, bring huge benefits uh, across the country. But if you get things wrong, Im imposing top-down solutions then creates systemic risk, right? So if you think about the financial crisis, one of the causes, underlying causes of that was... Most countries were regulating their banking systems <laughs> in the same way. Um, and so that creates kind of systemic risk around the globe. 
and in these issues creates potential systemic risk uh, within the programs. But you know, I'm, I work in policy every day and we kind of have to think through these issues. Um, I was really impressed by the way that you both approached um, the subject. You obviously read incredibly widely uh, in preparing for this. I think that um, uh, your intonations and the way you presented your arguments were, were great. Um, Leah, perhaps a little bit more, you know, kind of up and down when you get to the really forceful points, but you really hit it out of the park when it came to that final line, which, uh, which made up for any, uh, anything earlier on. So congratulations to both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you as well. Yeah, I, I, I have similar sentiment. I'm very impressed by um, the uh, debate. I think that everybody uh, here is impressed. I think um, it really highlights the strength of the debate program as well as um, uh, the strength of you guys as, as just uh, researchers. And I'm uh, really, um, really looking forward to what you all will do in the future. Um, so with regards to the various uh, cases, uh, Akesh's, um, Akesh, I really like your case. I like, um, you know, the, um, the main point of your state, uh, case, which is definitely reducing the administrative burden on welfare applicants. In fact, when I was in the Census Bureau, we would um, get calls from individuals who um, somehow made it through the uh, you know, the telecommunications system in the uh, Census Bureau and, and asked the person who, who wrote, like, the poverty report, oh, am I in poverty to qualify for a particular program? Am I below a certain threshold? Which did seem remarkably inefficient. The fact that you were asking individuals who may be disabled, elderly individuals who do not know how to navigate the Internet to... Um, to determine if they're below a threshold. And uh, so it, it, that is definitely something that I personally have seen and witnessed um, as a uh, government official. Additionally, um, I think uh, it, it, it's interesting, you know, the, some of the largest um, uh, income transfer programs are actually like the earned income tax credit and, um, and, the, uh, um, uh, and uh, the child tax credit. Um, and those are seen as very efficient, um, you know, ways of transferring wealth. But there have been um, counter arguments against that where people have said, you know, that it's just simply um, not targeted enough. Uh, there are researchers who, who um, you know, when they look at it, they see um, that maybe the issue is not just simply a material, um, you know, just giving people money, but maybe uh, um, that they, um, that we need to, like, uh, push them into things through like work um, training programs, things like that, as opposed to just simply, you know, uh, giving back the money that they paid in taxes. Um, uh, I, I, additionally, um, I I think that it's you know it, w the reason why I want to ask you about the uh, unreported income was because I worked in surveys. And in particular, I worked in a survey um, that was uh, the, uh, called SIP. And it was created in the 90s um, to uh, find out the amount of uh, entitlement money that was being um, uh, acquired by individuals who are on entitlement programs in the United States and kind of measure their actual well-being, um, accounting for that. And 
Um, what we found was that there is a substantial portion of income and low-income individuals that is unreported. So that one of the challenges for the government when if they decide to do a means-tested uh, way is that they would have to somehow acquire this information. And we know that from the surveys, people underreport. Uh, their income, and there's no way for like the uh, U.S. government. I mean, they, there is, but probably legislatively, it's impossible for the U.S. government to get it through like bank accounts or something like that. Um, additionally, there's a, you know one thing that I always um, think about, and this is a, more of a personal view that I, I, I have seen that there's for a lot of these uh, means testing programs, they they have a certain arbitrary amount. In, in the United States, it's we have a poverty threshold. It's based on a, um, a set of goods that was. Uh, determined by a sociologist in like the 1950s, I believe. And um, that uh, set of goods, um, we kind of inflate that every year and we determine a poverty threshold. And a lot of the state um, um, programs are, in order to qualify them, you have to be below this threshold, whether it be like 200% or something like that. And, um, you know, it, it is often like an arbitrary amount. You make $1 more, you're out. It, discour it can it discourage people from working because they, you know, are, they don't want to um, go above that threshold. So, like, I mean, this is my personal view, like a sliding scale would probably be better, you know, or something like that. Um, and also, uh, you know, if when you have individuals who uh, don't get it, they, d they don't make enough money to feel like they're okay, and then you have the individuals who are at the very bottom, who are below the threshold, and they do get the programs. You have this group of individuals in the middle, and the, and the people in the middle are often um, uh, frustrated because they are making more money than is than than the actual um, threshold, uh, uh, and and they still feel like they are having hard times or something like that. Um, okay, so uh, Leah, uh, yeah, I really appreciate your case. I'm, uh, I strongly uh, believe that education is definitely the um, kind of way that we can really set up um, equality, and I really appreciate your um, um, uh, your sentiment about early childhood education. And the reason why I asked was because um, uh, you know I, I know that there is countries that do not have um, you know the uh, um, early childhood education, but in the United States, I know that we've found that their low-income children have fewer words that are spoken to them than, um, you know, higher-income children and things like that. So hopefully your program could address uh, um, things like that. But I do think that it's important to consider things like, uh, you know, my, my, my wife is a teacher, and, and, she, and she had mentioned this to me. Often, like, boys are less, um, more rambunctious at a younger age, so they are less receptive to, um, you know, sitting down and, and, and being told to um, uh, learn something at an early age, while girls are very much more likely to sit and, 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 and listen. So you sometimes wonder when you have a uniform um, policy or something, is it appropriate? Uh, no, an, another thing is um, uh, the... Uh, the early, um, uh, yeah, there, I, I think that's all I have to say on that topic. The um, rela related to attending college, I, yeah, I think I, I would, I would really appreciate if your um, um, case had uh, uh, a little bit more about um, um, what, how, uh, what is it, what, are, how, what are the things that we expect for the people. Who, who don't go to college. You know, we, we, we often push college uh, onto children who maybe are underprepared or um, 
not, um, uh, or maybe this is just not the space that they should be going into. What are the, um, what are the like training schools or things? Because one thing we did see when we, when I was working in poverty is, is that there was a very strong, um, um, association with, um, higher education, higher income. Um, and, um, so, but, you know, as a statistician, I always say, you know, that is a selective, selected population. The individuals who, who seek out that education are often individuals who qualify for that education in the first place. And I'm always wondering about the individuals who fall through the cracks. And I think that in like a, uh, um, those individuals that fall through the cracks, how do we address those individuals who may not be, um, uh, honestly cut out for school or maybe they need it. So how do we help those individuals? Um, I still think that education will help them, maybe a different form of education, but it, it so I, I think that would be, um, what I, uh, feel, um, would be useful in your case. Um, but I still think, you know, at the end, I, I, one thing I really liked what you said, and I strongly believe in is, you know, you attack education, you can address Akesha's issue. So in that way, I, I completely agree with you in the sense that, um, you know, it, one thing I was um, in the U.S. Census Bureau I, I saw was, um, you know, when people are employed, they are less likely to be impoverished. And, it's, uh, and, and that's something like the best. Um, and so education can be a real great um, way to guarantee higher employment. And so the thing is, is that um, and if people are employed, uh, they're, they're less likely to be on the entitlement programs and things like that, and, and it lowers inequality, right? So I do agree with your sentiment there. But overall, yes, uh, I, I think that um, the debate was great, and I really appreciate you guys uh, sharing your viewpoints, and, um, and I think that I would love to see more um, debates like this. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you all for that wonderful round of applause. You beat me to it. Got to say, better to get more than one clap at a time, right? <laughs> yeah. These students were real bums this summer and were not in my lab at summer camp, but clearly that was probably a good thing because they did amazing. Before we wrap up here today, I just want to, uh, first of all, say a few thank yous um, to our uh, <coughs> association, Rhonda and Sarah and the rest of the folks who put in a lot of time and effort to help make this happen and to the supporters who uh, have been uh, <coughs> also making that possible. Um, I want to thank Cato for this stage. I mean, I feel like I'm about to be on Jeopardy here. <laughs> These blue boxes, man. Um, and lastly, I want to thank the educators that uh, have been taking some time out of their, their day to your coaches and, and otherwise support you all as young people. So let's, let's give those educators a quick second. Before I turn it over to Rhonda, I, I just want to tell you all, um, young people are doing some amazing things. And my call to you is to get involved, whether that is with the Urban Debate League here, whether that's with the Urban Debate League scattered all over the country, uh, Noddle's got a beautiful map that they just updated with all the new leagues. They're popping up, uh, Sacramento, Portland, and other places. Um, or whether it's with the association itself or just with a school in your local neighborhood. Kids could use some extra support, especially coming out of the pandemic. 
So my call to you all is to get involved with a school near you. So without further ado, I'll hand it over to Rhonda to close us out. Thank you, David. What a time, right? Debaters never disappoint. Alrighty, so we at Noddle launched iResolve in 2020, and it was a dream. The dream truly was to have students explore the debate policy topic with their lens from their community. And so we thank you both, Akash and Leah, for doing exactly that. And we love the fact that though or through these events, students receive feedback and recommendations on the strength of their case, on watch outs to avoid in positioning their cases, and also on presenting their arguments. And over the years, a few things that I've shared with students is that uh, later on in life, you have to pay for that kind of advice. So I hope that you take notes. <laughs> Uh, and receive that and apply that feedback to not just your debates, but how you present uh, moving forward, because it's a skill that you'll, you'll use for all of your life. Uh, and then finally, I wanna share that the real bonus here is that we get to see exactly how prepared students are and the diplomacy that debaters show. Where else do you see someone competing and complimenting one another uh, at the same time. I noticed and I just couldn't help but smile when Leah is applauding Akesha's efforts at uh, his, his um, closing speech. And it's very emblematic of what I see at debates that happen right here in Washington and of course throughout the country. And so debate as an activity is very different than what we think it might be. And we've proven here tonight that we can have different points of view, and we still have a conversation. And so really what we've seen here tonight is the promise of a future where young people research, analyze, they listen, they take notes, debaters take lots of notes, which makes me personally very happy. Um, and they, they collaborate and they participate and they're able uh, to hear one another's views. And what I love about it is they actually cheer each other on in doing all of those things. So thank you all for being here. Thank you for your interest in this particular event. And um, as David shared, we thank you in advance for supporting debate in your local areas. And I know Alan's gonna come and really, really close us out, but thank you to our panelists as well. We really appreciate your insights. I'd be remiss if I didn't join in thanking our debaters. The two of you were extraordinary, not so much because of what was unique about what you do, but what is beautiful about what you share is an example of what's possible. You are incredible as individuals, and the work that the National Association and the Washington Urban Debate League are doing to bring the caliber of this kind of conversation to students all across the country is wonderful. Thank you for being wonderful exemplars of that. Panelists, I should thank you both as well, both for uh, standing up to criticism yourself, but also offering thoughtful feedback and engaging our panelists tonight. We really appreciate the comments and perspectives you bring to the table. Finally, let me say part of what it is that we want to do with Sphere is 
return fact and analysis to conversation, and that's what we saw tonight. We saw a challenging and difficult topic, a topic where people strongly disagree about what it means, what we should do, and where we go. But we saw two incredible student debaters and two expert judges bring meaningful and different perspectives to the table in a way that modeled civil discourse, encouraged debate and engagement, and brought people to a spot where they're eager to think about what's possible. I encourage all of you to do the same. How do you bring that back to your community? For those of you watching online and those in the classroom, how do you bring that back to your schools? With that, let me briefly thank our co-host tonight, the Washington Urban Debate League and the National Association of Debate Leagues. It's been a pleasure to put this event on with you all and to thank you all attending here, joining us tonight and those joining us virtually for the conversation. That concludes our evening program. Thank you all so much for being here.